Hi, and thanks for downloading that B Word podcast. This is your beautiful bipolar host, Becky. So the never ending cycle of drama continues in my life. Uh, For those of you that weren't affected this past uh, week, we had some pretty severe high winds where I'm from. I just happen to live in a house that's surrounded by trees. And one of those trees just happened to fall over and crush both my car and my husband's car and take out a part of our fence. Oh, and clip the corner of our garage. So (laughs) we have a huge mess to clean up. I don't even, I don't, this tree is like right on our property line. And I don't know if it's our responsibility or our neighbor's responsibility. I was kind of hoping the insurance companies would fight that out. So I'm kind of in a limbo. I need to get these trees cleaned up. Um, so I can get my cars towed out to get them worked on, hopefully to get them fixed. In the meantime, I just have a rental car and then we have to split it between me and my husband. We need to get an estimate to get the tree taken care of, but we can't afford, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be like a thousand dollars and that's not the kind of, you know, we don't have that kind of cash. So I have to decide whether or not we're going to take care of it ourselves, which I don't want to because it also happened to take a telephone line down with it, which is now on top of my car, or try and find some sort of tree removal service that will give us the bill and wait for payment until we get the insurance money back. Otherwise, I don't know what else to do. It's not a situation that I've ever had to deal with before, so... Yeah, lots of drama. Lots of high wind drama here in the B-word household. But enough about my stuff. Well, today in news and reviews, I have a few articles to share with you. I came across on the NAMI blog, that's uh, at NAMI.org, an article called How Do I Know If My Therapist Is Effective? Not something that I've wondered about before, whether or not the therapist I'm seeing is is actually helping me or not. (laughs) And this article is by Laura Greenstein on February 14th, 2018. And it's at NAMI.org. And according to this article, there's a few key things a therapist should do help you know that they're effective. The first one is they should guide you to your goals and not make huge promises like I can get you to recovery within a certain period of time, or I can help you get rid of all your anxiety or something like that. They should help you reach your own goals and not make artificial goals to impose upon you. They should show acceptance and compassion. That seems like a no brainer, but you know, it's actually, it's actually not. (laughs) seems like a no brainer, but it happens that uh, you'll come across a therapist that is just not compassionate. In this article, there's a little anecdote from a patient saying that she went to talk to a patient with BPD who went to talk to a therapist about relationships she was trying to get over and what kind of things she would do to try and save the relationship. And the therapist told her, men don't like clinging women, you need to be coy. That, yeah, I'd say that's a red flag. Um, so those kind of statements, you know, statements that like invalidate how you're feeling or aren't compassionate towards you are the kind of statements that, uh, should stand out to you as a red flag. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't 
challenge you, which is the next bullet point she has here. They should challenge you to see things from a different perspective, even if it's hard to hear, which shouldn't be confused with not being compassionate. You can be compassionate and also push you out of your comfort zone, things like that. They should also check in with you regularly to see if you, how you think the therapy is going, how you think everything is working for, for you. My last therapist did this a lot, and um, I really liked the way she handled it. They should also help you learn, not only help you learn coping skills or stress handling skills, but also help you with, you know, with your relationships and things like that help you see things from a different perspective and they should be familiar with your culture and be competent with your culture if you're not from the same culture as your therapist then they should at least have a good understanding of the barriers that you face and and keep those in mind and the last point they should treat you as an equal they should work with you rather than on you i guess you know, you're both partners in this. And though she's giving you things to learn and coping skills, it's not it's not a teacher-student relationship. It's not right versus wrong. So you want to avoid any kind of power struggle or or I know best attitude. That would be another red flag for you to uh, to look at when deciding that your therapist is effective or not. So that's pretty helpful I think that's pretty helpful especially and I'm, I'm going to keep this in mind especially since I'm going to be starting appointments with a new therapist here in what three weeks now oh it takes forever to get into these people I can hold in until then but I'll definitely be using these these bullet points and I also wanted to share this article on understanding self-harm so if that's going to if that's an issue for you you should probably skip ahead three to five minutes this article is also by Laura Greenstein, Understanding Self-Harm. I think as most of us probably know, it's um, self-harm is generally used as a coping system for unbearable emotions, to relieve stress, to feel in control, and sometimes even to feel something for people who are experiencing numbness. Now, most people who engage in self-harm behaviors are teenagers and young adults although not all and that's it's thought because that's because they are going through multiple changes at one time transitions from like high school junior high to high school high school to college there's a lot of new stresses there the article goes on to say goes on to give a few first steps that you can take um, if you or somebody you love is having an issue with self-harming now the treatment there's this kind of standard treatment, CBT, DBT, which helps m learn more positive coping mechanisms, psychodynamic therapy, which is not something that I'm too familiar with, but it says here it identifies negative behaviors and how they have caused or been in influenced by past experiences and resolved unresolved feelings. And it goes on to list some positive coping mechanisms that you can use in place of self-harm direct redirect the urge use a, like a punching grab or a pillow punching grab punching bag or a pillow or it says here rip up a magazine which sounds yeah that sounds fun <laughs> self-soothing generally that's what breathe deeply 
trying meditation. My personal methods of self-soothing really don't, I mean, there's, yes, breathing deeply, but for me, it's more of a tactile thing. So what I will do, and I think it's pretty effective, will kind of like wrap my arms around myself while I'm like, I'm giving myself a hug and sort of like stroke and rub my arms a little bit. And that's actually, I'm doing it right now in case you hear something weird. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty effective. It's really soothing. Some other coping mechanisms you can use are to uh, do something expressive like write or paint or draw, depending on you know how, how you'd like to express yourself creatively. Or even learn to play a new, a new instrument or listen to a new song or your favorite song. Exercise if you can. Go for a run. Walk around your, your building. Walk around your park. Even just do some jumping jacks while you're watching TV sometimes like I do. <laughs> you just got to get some activity in there and it's too cold to go outside and it's too windy to go for a run and you don't want to go to the dance club because you don't want to drink you know do a little dance in place while you're watching tv or I used to um it's weird <laughs> it's weird but I used to like kind of march in place while I was watching television and that actually helped a lot anything really that like gets your body moving you know and of course the old standby, avoid alcohol and drugs. It lowers your self-inhibitions, it lowers your control, and you're at a greater risk of falling back into old habits if your self-control is diminished. So yeah, that's is a little tiny primer on understanding self-harm and some coping mechanisms. And my interview today is with Eric Murthel. You might remember him from being on the podcast before. He's got a new book coming out called The Boogeyman in the Orange Bottle, and we're going to learn in the interview when that's going to come out and a little more, a few more details about that and how he's been dealing with not only recovery but getting the book out and everything. And we'll learn a little bit more about where you can uh, pick up the book and how you can get in contact with Eric if um, you have any questions about benzodiazepine abuse or anything like that. He's really knowledgeable and really available if you need any help. So without any further comment from me, here is the interview. Hi, Eric. It's Becky. Hey, Becky. How you doing? How's the book come, coming? Oh, my God. The book is <laughs> taking places I didn't even expect. I, it, I'm ready for it. Oh, yeah? Where'd, <laughs> yeah. What's happening? I in the rest of the world. Um, okay, first we're having a big release party. Uh-huh. And I, well, I wasn't playing. Like, I was going to do something light. I didn't think it was going to turn out to be as big as it is probably going to be um yeah so that's going to be at a maker's gallery in rochester and is that new york yeah rochester new york uh maker's gallery 34 elton street uh april 28th uh 7 to 10 p.m nice um what else do you have planned i i've never been to a release party before so i have no idea what goes on there (laughs) oh it's it's basically i'll probably read a couple chapters uh the book will be officially for sale at the kickoff of that night, mm-hmm. um, the editor who personally edited for me, she was impressed. She even said, like, wow, you really did your research, and you're pulling this monster out of the closet. And I said, well, when you basically had to go through what I went through to, you know, be, to be able to get off, yeah, it pissed me off to the point where I was like, okay, not only am I going to do more, but I'm also going to help those behind me like that person did for me back in a, it was about a year ago around this time. So, yeah. 
Wow. It seems like uh, a year doesn't seem like all that much time, but a lot has happened. <laughs> nah, it's funny because, like, I'm looking at my, uh, you know, the honest day on Facebook from a year ago. Uh-huh. I was absolutely out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm like, shit, you know, just, yeah. Then, then, then it's just like, I'm just so happy. And I know I'm officially back because, like, none of that's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's but a- I'm, I'm, I'm also upset that it took a year of my life. Yeah. Well, at least you're going to be able to use that year and help other people yeah. with it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. So your email said that a bunch of stuff has been going on since the last time we talked. What uh, What's uh, up with that? Yeah. Um, well, the, the YouTube awareness page, that definitely grew. Um, I started a GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get you that link in a minute. Hold on. Sure, and I'll put that in the show notes, too. Okay, it's uh, GoFundMe.com. Slash benzodiazepine advocate awareness. Awesome. Um, yeah, but uh, you know it's me on there because it's got the picture of I think this was my 300 days out video. Uh huh. Okay. And in the clip, I look absolutely out of my mind. Huh. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's just like I don't think I took a good picture last year. It was that real. And everybody who saw me, they're like, "Well, you look fine." But that's the thing with you know benzos and not even just benzos, all prescription drugs. You look fine. Mm-hmm. But if they only knew the war you're in. Just to basically keep yourselves up, you know, and the urges you get to just give up and take a pill. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was surreal to me because all through, I want to say the health phase of it, which was roughly the first six months, I, I kept the pill. That's, well, I just got rid of the pill bottle in front of my TV, but, and I moved since then too. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um. I actually moved, moved back with my mom full, full on now. I'm here. Um. I plan on being here all of 2018, and then 2019, I'll go and try to take over the world again. But, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I don't, because I didn't make uh, any kind of uh, gain last year financially, I said, okay, let me go back to my mom. I'll stay here. Uh, I'll try to save up, and then next year, I'm going to actually attempt to move downstate to New York City. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, where, where the media market is bigger, and then I'll be able to take this thing and, and throw it out there, and more people will be able to catch it. Yeah, that'd be great. Um Oh. Yeah, it's hard to bounce back from that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to take time and, you know, do what's yeah, good for you. But, yeah, and, you know, thankfully my mom was, who was my champion last year, she she basically was the reason why I was able to get through it. She took me back. She said, yeah, you know, you don't got to pay me much rent. So <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, also I've been in contact with a very major talk show. Oh, yeah? Can you say who? Yeah, but. Uh, I'm not going to, because I don't want to jinx it. Yeah. <laughs> but the th- uh, we've been communicating, I want to say, roughly for about a month now. Um, What was that? New Year's Eve when uh, I, um, they sent me, no, somebody sent me a link. They're like, contact this talk show. Maybe they could possibly have you on. And I believe there was a person who also was going through a benzo guys with me withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on it. And uh, that's how it got to me. And they corresponded back like, okay, we've heard your story. We, we want to have you on. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to California sometime this month. Um, it was supposed to be the 7th through 12th that fell apart. So it'll probably be after Valentine's Day, but I'm going to go to California sometime this month. Uh, I'll be out there five, six days. I'm going to meet with a doctor friend of mine who actually gave me an excerpt for the book. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, and my brother lives out there, so you know, I'll get some time in with him. I'll, I'll be with the doctor. Um, and then uh, i got a buddy out there that I met from the benzodiazepine awareness I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, who stays in uh, the Silicon Valley, I believe. Yeah, okay. we're going to actually get together and uh, we're going to try to create that non-for-profit. Oh, nice. What's, uh, yeah. what's that called again? 
Uh, do you have any for, for No, just knives. Like, it's just an idea right now. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely going to um, it's gonna be the reality. Everything else has so far. Yeah. And like, I, I'm too far in to turn around now. Like, everybody <laughs> says, you're so great for doing this. I said, trust me, if you knew how deep in the muck I am, you <laughs> you feel sorry for me. Cause, and, and a lot of people say, like, you, like, how are you doing it? You know, just... Like the, the screams, the cries, the the anger, it's a lot. Like, how do you take it out all by yourself? Yeah. And I, I tell them, like, I have to. It's bigger than me at this point. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, well, there's a ton of people out there struggling just like you did. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a lot to put on your shoulders, really. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I want to eventually, you know, start an 800 number and get a, a group of, uh, you know, you like, you don't have to be trained to, to listen to people. Like they mm-hmm. say, you know, you're gonna need some kind of license. In this case, I'm like, nah, I'm not worried about it. You know, anybody tries to sue me, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm prepared for all that. Just you know, and I don't really t- tell anybody, you know, don't t- stop taking the pills. I tell them just proceed with caution. Please consult your doctor on everything. Yeah. Like the only reason I had to turn my back on my doctor was because she wasn't trying to work with me. Her her answer to everything was, okay, you stop the clonopin, we're gonna put you on this benzo. And I, you know, my analogy of that was. How does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, to go off of clonopin to lorazepam is only coding the problem. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and I, I just said, okay, I'm strapping in. I, I don't care. <laughs> I set myself to a full-fledged withdrawal. Yeah. So G never had any sort of plan for you to, like, taper down or anything like that? Uh, uh tape, yeah. We, she tried that. We tapered for three years. And, like, mm-hmm. by the time I just said, you know, and I'm, that's it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, And it wasn't like I just did it, though. I did my research. Uh, I think I studied for like a month and a half. I prepared for a month. And then by the time New Year's of 2016 came, it was just like, okay, I'm doing this starting tomorrow. Yeah. That has to be yeah. scary. It, it was. Um, the worst part of the whole thing with me and probably 93% of the people I talked to is, is the suicidal ideation. Like, these mm-hmm. are all confident people, including myself. I'm the, like... Me killing myself isn't even a fathom in my head. But mm-hmm. Every like thing you've done in your life that you questioned becomes a voice telling you, "Oh, you're stupid. You did it wrong. You should kill yourself." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then that voice gets deeper and heavier. Then you start like reliving it and, and wishing you could do it over. It just becomes like a dreary thought. And then you know, upon my research of everything, and because you know, I took it up outside of benzos, it's all prescription drugs. Um, I, I learned that with opiates, it's the same thing. Like, getting off of these, you know, and the, the bad part about it is is that you can't get any of these pills basically without a doctor. Mm-hmm. So these doctors are licensed drug dealers torturing people. They know the end result, and they don't give a shit. I mean, some doctors, there are some good doctors, and there are some doctors who aren't, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. like obviously, said, like anybody. It was great, yeah, yeah. you know, until we got to this point, and even after, like, when she saw me going through it, she said, I can put you an opiate with, uh, what's that? Yeah, she wanted to send me to uh, heroin withdrawal rehab. Mm-hmm. And I, I was up for it till I was, I, I read to realize I'm not going through heroin withdrawal. Yeah. It's that's not going to do me any good. And then that's when I went to go look for a benzo center and there is none. Yeah. Is there, do you couldn't find one anywhere in the country or? Um, at least in my general area yeah. of, I want to say basically all New York state or the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. There isn't any. And um, from further research and all the people I talked to, because even I'm global now, like there's people calling me from Denmark. Wow. Sweden, Britain. Um, Israel. Oh, look at you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's just like, and I, I tell them I'm, I'm honored and humbled, 
But uh, and I didn't know over there they don't have the right to sue their doctor, or hold them accountable. Oh, really? Yeah. So Ooh. it's like it's got to be even worse over there, and their their medicine they're probably worse off over there because of that. Because mm-hmm. a doctor can operate without any fear of a uh, you know backlash. Yeah. So what uh, are you able to help them find any sort of resources over there? Or? Um, I just I offer my I tell them don't think because of the time zone difference or you know any other time you need to talk to me. You call me. Yeah. You know, if I don't answer, you know, shoot me a text or an email and I will call you back ASAP. And I told them eventually with what I'm doing, I hope to get an 800 number. So it's going to be easier for them to call me, too, because they said, like, uh, due to international rates or time disparity, they get confused about when to call. Yeah. So, yeah. But I told them uh, the probably the main goal of all this is just to get this to be more of an outcry and to get a number to where anybody can call it. So 1-800 number is definitely in the works. Wow, that'll be great. Um, yeah. And is that going to be specifically for benzodiazepines? Are you going to? Um... Uh, no, all all withdrawals yeah. or anything. You know, just if you want to talk about sports or you know, you get you know, <laughs> I say you get into an argument with your you know buddy about it, and you want me to either to hear it and get my you know analogy of it, I will because you know I call sports up here. Uh-huh. Yeah, on um uh, in Rochester, I've been doing okay. that for be six years next month. I was on the radio. Oh, that makes sense why you have such a good radio voice. Then. <laughs> well, that led me to it. But I, honestly, they told me to do it. I, I went to school for law. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, that sounds like a lot of fun. I've never, I'm not a big sports person, so. Oh, well, to... you're going to watch the Super Bowl today, right? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, for the commercials or the halftime show? Yeah, well, I have this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I always go and we always have wings and stuff Super Bowl oh. Sunday, even though I have no idea, you know, anything about what's yeah. happened up to this point but yeah just the patriots uh, i don't know if i'll get in trouble for this but they cheat they cheated for 19 years yeah it's a popular <laughs> and, opinion uh, yeah and uh, I, i'm tired of it so i do hope tom brady retires after this win or lose yeah well he's uh, getting up there he probably should uh, uh, yeah and i mean if you look at you look at the shape brett Favre's in it, it makes perfect he should have retired last year he has nothing left to play for yeah yeah. yeah, so, and I mean, with brain damage and all that, I've had people call me because, you know, um, I was diagnosed with uh, partial brain damage from my frontal lobe. Oh, really? Is my that... brain, yeah, from the benzo, yeah, from the really? benzo. Yeah, and uh, that's actually a result of taking them long term. I didn't know that until I met with a brain trauma doctor while I was withdrawing, and she stuck me in the machine. She said, yeah, you have uh, partial signs of brain damage to the frontal lobe of your your." Uh, was that right quadrant or uh, doctor? I don't speak doctor, but yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, upon research of that, um, I found out that benzos cause partial brain damage to the frontal lobe of your right quadrant of your third sector. I, wow. Yeah, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So how's that? Is that affecting you at all or? Um, no, I can drive. Oh, I can good. wipe my ass. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need, right? To a certain extent, yeah, anyway. That's it. As long as you go like that, you can drive. You're okay. You're a functional <laughs> member of society. So, wow, that's really exciting. I'm really happy uh, everything has turned out so well for you. Yeah. And I mean, it just started with me doing a, a video of me losing my mind last January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's the, <laughs> yeah. Um, the YouTube channel going? Oh, that's growing too. Um, I do live streams now. I try to do about one every two weeks. Uh huh. And uh, just the feedback I get from those are the people telling me, like, oh, my God, you're so great for this. We really appreciate you, Eric, you know, and uh, that's where the GoFundMe actually came to be. Okay. Um, a good friend, well, a now good friend and her husband, uh, Brenda, in Buffalo, who's an hour away from me, she 
uh, we, she called me one time wanting to talk about what she was going through. And she was like, you know, you should start a GoFundMe. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to ask for handouts. You know, she was like, no, you don't have to. GoFundMe is completely voluntary. And trust me, with what you're doing, people are going to want to help. And she was right. You know, people are want help. Even if you're not into it to make a profit, there's still costs. You know what I mean? Yeah, to do yeah, this stuff, and, um, so. yeah. And uh, that's what I told them, too, because, you know, my eventual goal is to get to D.C. sometime after uh, June. I want to bring this to Congress's doorstep. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, try to get some awareness and some centers and some doctors that know what the hell they're doing with it. Because, you know, if you got a bunch of doctors that, you know, we go to and we trust with our, our livelihood mm-hmm. and they see you go through a bit. And the thing about a benzo withdrawal is you look fine. Trust me, everybody said you look fine. But I told them if you only knew what was going on inside my head. Yeah. It's torture. Yeah. <laughs> it's actual torture. Like I told them I had brain surgery in 2004. And that recovery was hell. I told them I'll do that for 100 days straight to not have gone through a minute of what I went through getting off those damn sleeping pills. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that can't, I mean, that recovery had to be horrible by itself. It, it was, just yeah. the vomiting alone. Because, uh, like, you know, they, when they're under for surgery, they pump you full of so much shit just to keep you numb. Uh, yeah. What do they call that? Numb. You know, so I remember once I got home and they took, once the IV was on, I was getting, it took probably two days of just throwing up everything they put in me. Oh. And, and it felt like I was throwing up nails. Ouch. Yeah. Ooh, that doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, I'll do that for every day for a month to not have gone through the mental warfare of that benzo withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Like, cause, um, there's there's probably a good 15 people I talk to now who say, like, okay, so once the physical end of it's over, the physical really only lasts about two weeks. Yeah, and after that, it's yeah. all like a mental it's all mental the thing about mental battle is is that because everybody's brain is different you can't timetable it right no two people have the same thought process or brain pattern or you know just the molecular construct of the brain to where you can gauge it i tell people like it took me a year it may take longer for you it may take shorter Mm -hmm. and um they like well you know and i say but you can use me as evidence that it does end and as long as you're willing to get through it and not let the, the what's going on in your head, you know, become victorious, you will win. Mm-hmm. And that's and I say you can hold me accountable to that. If you feel like you got to call me every day until it happens, please do. Yeah. Sometimes that's all people need is to see somebody that's on the other side. Yeah. You know? And um, that's that's what I try to do. And uh, even those that doubt me, and I, I trust me, I got a bunch of people when I first started out that said, you're, you're stupid for this. You're not going to win. You know, go, going up against Big Pharma, which is, is did you, um the medical industry in America is a trillion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. It, it's probably the only true trillion dollar industry in this country because of all the facets of it. And um, they said like you're just a little, I'm just a little guy from upstate New York, you can't win. But I said, well, I'm one guy by myself. But looking at everybody that's behind me now, yeah. If we if we do this right, we'll get what we want. And you know, the key to to a demonstration is to agitate. So what is it? What is it that you want then? Are you talking want, about when you go down to DC or? I, I want awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want centers. I want help. I want doctors that are. I want doctors first to start with them. Like, okay, I get that you are the pawn in all this. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, doctors have a quota to meet with prescriptions. You know, they answer to a company that answers to the government. So the government's the the, the true boogeyman. Orange bottle is the government. You'll find that out in the book. Um. Then the pharmaceutical companies, and then the doctors, and then the the you know it trickles all the way down to us who are the 
the the victims. Mm-hmm. But you know, it all starts with the people at the top, which is the United States government, who funds the pharmaceutical corporations, who trade our social security numbers on Wall Street. Who, if you can attach, you know, certain things to a person, they're more valuable. And this was all came in my research for the book, and it was it was like, damn, we really aren't shit to them, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary when you yeah. put it like that. But it, it's it's reality, and you know, it's just and um, like okay, you look at us now in 2018 as a society. If six out of ten people are adults are taking some kind of prescribed medication. Mm-hmm which is the actual number um, out of, what, 320.1 million people? Uh, I forgot the exact number of adults that is, but it's a, it's a great number. Yeah. If six out of 10 of them, yeah, if six out of 10 of them are on some kind of prescribed medication, and if we're the world power right now and we fast forward 20 years, if we're all on drugs and we're producing, you know, these kids that have side effects from us being on drugs, where are we going to stand in 20 years? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's why it's like I got to do this now. And if, if we if we start now, we it's not going to change right away. And like we all got to accept that it's an opiate crisis that's probably out of out of out of our control right now. Yeah, and, that's scary too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and um, that's you got to wonder like, about how many of those sixty percent or six out of ten people are are struggling with the opioids or what kind of you know like how much yeah. what percentage of that is. Is yeah, uh, but, opioid and benzos and all that. And benzos and, and you know, over-the-counter drugs, uh, household products. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, and, and um, I, what was I was watching a video on YouTube about, um, the pro, like, how you can make basically the equivalent of methamphetamine with, like, a... Uh, oh, don't tell anybody. Wash. Don't tell everybody. Oh, okay, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I apologize. Uh, you can't make meth- methamphetamine. Okay, yeah, wait, yeah. wipe that part out. But, well, yeah. <laughs> just some random stuff. Yeah, just, yeah, okay. But no, and it's just like how easily this stuff is accessible. Yeah, you got these kids now who they're looking for that next high because they the stuff that they do do isn't working anymore. So just think about that. And they're the ones coming next as a generation that's supposed to lead us. But if they're all messed up now, Mm-hmm. You know, it's like and an escalation kind of. Yeah. And another thing is, look how young you could put a child on ADD medication. Like, was it three years old? Yeah, it's young. I don't know exactly, <laughs> but it, it's young. <laughs> yeah. No, you can't tell the kids good. At, like, you can't put them on prescriptions at three years old because of the fact that they're three years old. Mm. You know, OK, he doesn't talk to people. Yeah, social anxiety. Let's put him on Ritalin. <laughs> <laughs> three years old. I mean, you're not talking to much of anybody. <laughs> Yeah, because he, he sits in the corner during the whole day. Like, he's had social anxiety? I don't think so. Yeah, it's hard to tell when, uh, like, since kids are still developing and everything. It's yeah. It's hard to find that why, line, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I say, like, even with the whole, like, at least give them to puberty before you make any, like, determination, you know? Mm-hmm. Don't, at the age of six, say, well, he's messed up. Let's put him on, you know, uh, uh, what's that? Well, we'll use Ritalin because that's what they hand out. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, Ritalin. Okay, so they they get a kid. He's three, four years old. He doesn't communicate with his. He's in pre-K. That's where you go to learn how to interact with kids. He doesn't interact with the kids. And our parents take him to um, an appointment, uh, whatever kind of doctor. They're, they're they're witch doctors at this point to me. I refuse to go to a hospital for anything. Anything? <laughs> anything. Even if you broke an arm. 
Uh, it won't matter. I'll lay here and I'll try to pop it in myself and Ooh. suffer through the pain. Oh, man, that um, sounds like hurt. Uh, yeah, but it's that bad because, like, they tortured me. I was a pawn, you know, and a pawn's mission is suicidal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like that, it's true. Nah, and it's that bad. And, I mean, like I said, I'm not out here telling people don't go to the doctor, don't listen to them. They are trained in what they do, but it takes a rare breed of cat to be a doctor, you know, with all the schooling and the pressure and the, the training and the, oh, yeah. the shadowing for four years or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, just to me, you don't have that great number of doctors that actually care that enough about their job to say, okay, I'm going to give them this pill, I'm, but am I going to do the research on the pill before I prescribe it to them? And am I going to stay behind them making sure it's working for them? Yeah. You know, because um, yeah. when I was originally... When I was originally put on benzos, the doctor that did it, he he was that. But then he moved up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. people just have to find a doctor they trust and make sure that they're advocating for themselves too. Yeah. Yeah, which can be hard to do if you, because I think people are, in general, kind of trained to just accept that's what, what authority is, you know? will say, say, oh, this is the yeah. pill that's going to make, make you feel better. And so you yeah. take the pill, it doesn't make you feel better. And then you think, oh, what's wrong with me? That this doesn't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you have to advocate for yourself and things like that. Exactly. And uh, nah, that's the that's the worst part about it. You know, is as kids, we're trained to, you know, you always respect a certain class of people. That's law enforcement, politicians, and doctors. Yeah. <laughs> do what your doctor says. At least one know? of those does not deserve any respect. In my well, opinion. I would say I would say all three at this time because like this country's in madness. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but uh, no, and, and it's just it's ter- like um, one of the points I bring up in the book is think about a, a, a commercial about these pills. You got two voices. You got the warm, welcoming female voice that's telling you, "Oh, take uh, X, Y, Z." It's great. It'll make you. And then you got that deep masculine stern voice coming behind it saying may result in possible cause of death. Death may be a result. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. No, but the end result is, okay, so you're telling me that the, the it's going to treat what I'm going through, but it's going to throw in these six other things that combined are probably worse than what I'm going through. Yeah. I'm taking my chances. It's side effects, man. <laughs> I'm taking my chances, you know, and that's another thing I cover in the book. Oh, and of the cover of the book, it's badass. Is that what you sent me? The picture you yes, sent me? That's yeah, that's what I sent you. Yeah, that I'm going to put that up with even, the show. So. Yeah, it's not even done. That's the thing about it. like when I, I paid for it on uh, Thursday, and she said like I'm not even done with it. I was just waiting for the payment to finish it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's I said, pretty. well, yeah, and I to her flat out like, if you want more money, I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, cause, you know, when I recruited her, um, can I give her a plug? Yeah, go for it. Okay, um, her name's Sarah Peck. Um, she's on Facebook and, uh, I believe her, uh, contact is a uh, paint spec. That's the company she operates under. But, okay. um, and I'll have yeah. that, um, in the show notes and probably as the show artwork too, so that, uh, everybody can see. What yeah. She's um, yeah. Um, but yeah, she did the cover and that, I actually sent you the finished cover when I get that too. But, uh, if you look at the one that's up now and I told her that's good enough, she said, no, I'm not done with it. So I'm actually looking forward to what more she can do with it. Yeah. That'd like, be, yeah. that'd be cool to see. Yeah. Cause, uh, as you've seen, like, I told her, like, I just wanted, like, a pill bottle. I want it tipped over. I want the pills to be, like, in hearts and uh, the title to be on one of the pills. Oh. You seemed like she she did her shit with it. And I was, I was, I told her, like, you, I'm going to plug you on everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, she deserves that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And, um, no, but this definitely, in the like, it's so much bigger than the book. I wrote the book because I was pissed off. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I said it flat out. Like I, I wrote my memoir in 2015, and I was supposed to release that at the Author Expo in Rochester this past May in mm-hmm. 2017. I was unable to because I was withdrawing so bad. Yeah. So then in June, I said, "Okay, I'm about to write. I'm about to write down what I'm going through, and I'm going to publish it." And that's where the Boogeyman in Orange Bottle came through. Came about. Have you kind of in- incorporated your memoir into that? Or are you going to release that separately? Um, you think? Uh, no, the memoir I decided I'm not going to paperback okay. uh, because of it's a tell-all basically, and I throw some people under the bus, uh, mm-hmm. ma- mainly my dad. But you know, it's a whole separate story that doesn't apply to the, this show. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you want, I can email you that also. Um, yeah, if uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. always interested yeah, I mean, in all kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, so that's not a problem. I'll send you that too. But um, yeah, and uh, you know, just this this whole thing with the boogeyman in orange bottle. It's my love story, and I'm I'm out here to tell it. Yeah, well, your the byline says a love story by teams. What's that? Teams. Mean? Teams is the acronym I write under. It's a ah. it's the acronym for the Eric A. Myrtle story. Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. That's yeah, that's my author name. It's Teams. Okay. I'm, yeah. I get that. Cool. Uh, my first uh, body of work was called Teams, the Eric A. Myrtle story. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, I just adapted it as my uh, pen name. So when people are looking for it, like on Amazon, would they look under uh, under uh, Myrtle or I'm Teams? Not, or? Uh, I believe it'll come up as both. But um, okay. you probably just want to type in Boogeyman in Orange Bottle. Um, me and the publisher were actually going to start working all that out, I think, coming soon by, like, this month before mm-hmm. I leave for Cali. Awesome. Are you going to be doing yeah. a lot of um, promoting out while you're out there on the West Coast? Uh, yeah, I hope to. Um, if anything, I'm probably going this time just to feel it out. It'll be my first time over there. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll probably go back after that once I get the uh, see the response for the book here. I'll probably do another release party out there. Yeah. And um, from uh, I even get calls from Canada, and they were saying, like, you should come up here and do something. So I said, let me see what I get to start out, and I'll probably attempt to do that. Well, then who knows? I'll, I might end up in Europe. You'll be all over the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I truly didn't know it was that bad of a global crisis, but it is. Like, they have gone mad with these prescriptions. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people uh, are definitely suffer with that, so. Yeah. I'm glad that you can be out there to give people hope. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up or um, talk about? Uh, plug my phone number, my email, yeah, uh, my Twitter. Okay, my phone number to everybody is 585-456-6109. Yeah, my email. <laughs> oh, no, that's and trust me. You can 100% call that at any time. I will answer. Uh, the, the funny thing is, is that people call it, oh, my God, it's you. and and like i laugh at it now but at first i i didn't get it It, it, because remember at the time when i I was about to jump out the window that guy answered yeah and he's the cause of all this and i don't know who he is but he really is the cause of all this um what else my email is a d y c e the number two g three zero 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 at gmail.com uh, my Twitter handle is twitter.com slash legendary Eric. That's E-R-I-C-K. The GoFundMe, which will be in the link after I, I shoot this over to you, is gofundme.com slash benzodiazepine dash advocate dash awareness. Um, it'll be on the link of this, art, of this right? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be in the show okay. notes for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to get that on there. Um, my YouTube page, everybody... 
subscribe, please, is Eric Myrtle. That's E-R-I-C-K-M-Y-R-T-H-I-L. I try to do a video once a week, and I'm now doing live streams at least once every two weeks. Um, if anything you ever start to question yourself on with doing anything with, you know, the prescriptions, give me a ring. I urge you to don't think it's a burden on me. It's not. And that's anytime, whenever, because I know how much you can, you can really need someone to talk to when it's dark out and that might be when it feels the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show again. I really appreciate Uh, it. And I, like I said in the last one, you know, when I get ready to, you know, get more under me. I'll, I'll definitely shoot, do the second interview and we'll look towards the third. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Send me that story you're, you were talking about before and, yeah, yeah, and uh, my memoir, I'll shoot that to you. Yeah. Great. Uh, it got some, some great moments in there of me finding myself in my adolescence of college and mm-hmm. yeah. And <laughs> so that's all in there, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm out there to tell it all. I, I hold nothing of my life. I, you know, I hope to inspire people with it. Um, that's actually where the story of my brain surgery is probably documented the best is in teams, my okay. original novel. Yeah. Yeah. So I will shoot that over to you. Um, B word. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. And uh, let, let's just, you know, we're, we're moving. So let's keep going. All right. All right. Well, best of luck to you. And uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Uh, thanks, Eric, again for being on the podcast. And be sure to check out uh, The Boogeyman in the Orange Bottle. Uh, next, I have a listener story that I wanted to read. It was a little too short to be the main story and a little too long to be in the news. So um, I'm going to put it right here. And I should also mention here that uh, this does deal with some very uh, uncomfortable topics, including abuse and self-harm. So if those things are troubling for you, Maybe just catch me on the next episode. Okay, thanks. This is Nick's story. My first memory in life is my mother sexually abusing me. I was two. I was terrified. I left my body that day. Every time it happened, I would leave my body. It wasn't just sexual abuse. There was emotional and physical abuse. She used to beat the shit out of me just for doing things that kids do, like spilling a glass of milk. My grandmother told me a story that when she went to change my diaper one day and I was thrusting my hips up saying to do me. My mother kidnapped me and ran off to another state. She hid me for a year and a half. She was discovered after she beat my great-grandmother in front of me. My grandmother was granted emergency custody of me as my father was in no place to take care of me. My parents split up when I was 18 months old, divorced by two. I had opposite ends of the spectrum of parental behavior and divorce. My father was always respectful. He wanted no one to say anything bad about my mother and let me decide how I felt. My mother was the exact opposite. We used to have to leave the house and hide to avoid my mother coming over. My grandmother was married to her second husband when I moved in with her. He was an abusive alcoholic, piece of shit. He beat my grandmother because of me. He beat her because of anything. He never knew that I saw my dad every other weekend. He thought my grandmother just dropped me off somewhere. Her husband and my mother started conspiring to convince the courts that she was an unfit guardian to get custody of me again. One day, I came home from school to find my aunts there packing up a storm. They asked me to go to my room and just watch TV. I was in there maybe ten minutes when my aunts came running in, scooped me up, and ran downstairs. They were trying to get out before before the husband came home, but it was too late. He beat my grandmother in front of us until he finally let her go. We ran to the car, and as we drove off, 
He yelled, if he ever saw any of us again, he'd kill us. I was six. Yet, that was the first time I saw a gun in person. I distinctly remember my grandmother saying, keep that hidden, make sure the kids don't find it. We hid out for a week at my friend of my aunt's, and then my aunt drove me to my other grandmother's work with a bag of clothes, and that is how I moved in with my dad, stepmom, and my dad's parents. But then it turned into a huge court battle. Apparently, the judge in the case went to the chambers with me alone. If there is one memory that I wish I could actually remember from my childhood, it's this one. Whatever I said to him had a profound effect on him. When he came out of the chambers with me, he made his ruling. He called my mother a horrible liar, and that he couldn't believe the amount of filth that came out of her mouth. He awarded sole custody of me to my father. He also made a ruling on visitation rights. Only I could decide when I wanted to see my mother, and when I did, I was never to be left alone with her. As I grew up, I acted sexual. I did it towards my father, towards other kids, other teachers, yet no one got me help. Later, when I confronted my stepmother when I was 12 and told her what happened, she told me, well, you didn't talk, so we just assumed. We no longer speak. I was 13 the first time I tried to commit suicide. I tried to slice my neck open, but I barely broke the skin when my father knocked on the door, scaring me. The depression started then. It cycled on and off until now. The depression was extreme. I tried to commit suicide numerous times as a teenager. Ironically, as kids do, I picked up a phrase when I was 12 of, oh my god, this is so ridiculous, I could just kill myself. My parents had put me into a shitty private religious school, which still hates me to this day and heavily enforces the rules they created because of me. And someone got worried, then ended up taking me to the ER at the county hospital where I couldn't talk to anyone, as my as my stepmother later told me. In retaliation to that statement, I told my stepmother that she was a year too early and walked away. I drank a lot in high school. I did a lot of drugs. I skipped school a lot too, but still made the National Honor Society because of my test, test scores. I cut myself in high school. My bulimia developed in, ju- in junior year. Throughout all of this, my depression started to cycle. I would feel good for a few months, sometimes even happy. The rest of the time, I would be so depressed I could barely get out of bed. I never slept. I would sleep an hour a night, and I was sick all of the time. A lot of my teachers got worried and tried to help me, but I ignored them all. I met a guy online. I moved to be with him, and we were married just until just a few years ago. Nearly ten years together. My marriage was done before it began. I had a few affairs with some friends. I'm still very close friends with them. And finally, after years of talking, I convinced myself that it was over. I convinced my husband that it was over. A few months before he moved out, I got roofied. Since then, my life has been a shit show. Panic attacks started. My depression came back. The worst it had been in 10 years. This started what had been over a year and a half of medication, doctor's appointments, and a diagnosis of bipolar type 2, a self-diagnosis of PTSD. And recently, in the last six months, I've started hearing voices. The hearing voices did not surprise me, as my paternal grandfather was schizotypal. Schizotypal? Schizotypal. I've had every side effect listed on the bottles of meds, even severe ones, to the point that I had to drop the medication cold turkey even after my body had adapted to it, enough to be weaned off of it. I quit a job I loved. I went back to a job I hated. Got laid off from that job. I got let go after two weeks from another job because another woman was threatened by me and convinced the boss to fire me. We did not get along. I started contracting back at my old office because I got got let go from that job on Thanksgiving 17. I took the month off and was invited back on a temporary contract work for three months, which I am currently in, hoping to leave permanent. When I was growing up, I was told my father always worked hard for me, that my mother made him hand-deliver his child support in person. 
This I don't doubt, and she never paid child for it herself. My father is a lazy bum. He wants everything to be done for him. He was raised that way by his parents because he was, quotes, special. He was sent to a special high school, which is the high school where they send the kids who got kicked out of their own schools. He lost his job when I was 12. To this day, he has not had a permanent job. I'm 27. He fell into a deep depression and always expected his parents or my stepmother to help him. However, this year I found out that my father never paid for anything for me. He never looked for work. His mother paid for everything. Everything I know about my father has shattered these past three months. I got a phone call from my stepmother that said she was living with her daughter. My dad went on a five-day drinking bender and was in the hospital after being taken there by the police. My father had been hearing voices and called them when he was in withdrawal. My father lost our house, my childhood home. He got under $10,000 for a house that was worth over 180000 The house did need a lot of work, more than they can afford, but it was our home. After he lost the house and moved into an apartment and was nearly evicted last week due to not paying his rent, his brother covered it and he is looking for jobs but always seeks pity. My last visit with my doctor, she said, after hearing more of my background, that I was holding myself up well considering. I've become a great actor. I needed to get all that out. It didn't include a ton of details. If I did, this would be incredibly long. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nix. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us, even though it was quite difficult to share. I'm really honored that you would uh, choose to do that on my podcast. So thank you very much. And I wanted to share some resources here at the end of this story in case anybody who has been listening needs some additional assistance in these areas. There is a self-injury helpline. It's 1-800-334-HELP. And that's 24 hours a day. If you need help with domestic domestic violence, call 1-800-799-SAFE. And that will um, hook you up with some additional resources if you're battling domestic violence. There's also To Write Love on Her Arms. That's www.twloha.com, which is an amazing site that um, is dedicated to people who need help struggling with depression, addiction, and self-injury. And please, if you are battling any of these, please reach out. You can reach out to a therapist, call any of these numbers, or reach out to me. I don't pretend to be any sort of specialist or professional, but I'm always here to talk and to listen. And with that being said, you can reach me at that B word at stonefruitmedia.net or at thatbwordpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at thatbword1. That's the numeral one. Find me on Facebook at thatbwordpod and on Pinterest. Just search for thatbwordpodcast. And you can find all of my previous episodes at thatbword.stonefruitmedia.net. And if you haven't yet, please, please, please uh, rate and review on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you listen to the podcast. It really means um, a lot and helps the podcast grow. Really, really appreciate it. And I haven't mentioned it in a while, but I do have a voicemail. If you'd like to call in your story instead of writing it in, uh, you can do so. And that voicemail number is 330-353-9633. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.